Good morning. How's everybody doing today? I trust you are well. Can't hear me, huh? Okay. Well, that sound better? It's coming. Is the volume coming back up? Great. Well, let's get started. We are talking about Leviticus chapters 1 through 10. We are looking at this section of the book as the fact that God can dwell with mankind only through sacrifice. In other words, sacrifice is the one and only way man can approach God because God is holy and he has, he has specified the way of approach to him. And there are no other approaches, only through sacrifice. Were the sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle by Levitical priests? Let's, let's ask the question, were they efficacious? And the answer is, ultimately not. Only the blood of Christ is efficacious for the forgiveness of sin. But in God's plan, they were efficacious for the time. In other words, they, they covered man's sin until Christ could come. And these Levitical sacrifices were intended to teach uh, Israel that there is only one way of approach. Without the shedding of blood is no remission, the author of Hebrews says. And so we want to see that right from the very beginning, literally practically less than a month after Israel had gotten to Mount Sinai, they had to realize it is only by God's grace that I can, approach, I can approach my holy God, who has called me out to be ultimately a member of the nation of priests, of royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Only by God's grace has he made me one of those who are his treasured possession. And therefore I must respond. Now, the big question is, how many did respond by faith? How many were faithful in bringing the sacrifices we're looking for? Last week after class, two people asked me this question. How many people were in Israel? Several million, right? If you took several million people, if everyone brought an offering simply once a year, that's three million offerings. Now divide three million by 365. How many offerings a day is that? That's a lot of offerings. So how did the priests have time to do the required, basically butchering, of all these animals? Well, that's a good question. And I think it mostly hinges on asking ourselves the question, were Israelites spiritually inclined 
to approach God in the only way he mandated. Think, about a month before we are, you know, before we, the, the nation was instructed this way, we had people who, they just thought, well, look at how long Moses has been up there on the mount. It's been almost 40 days, and they're starting to get antsy, and they're saying to themselves, well, we don't know whether this Moses guy is coming back down off the mountain, so let's make ourselves a golden calf to worship. Whoa, they've already been instructed from the Ten Commandments that God is a jealous God. That is, he's zealous for the exclusivity of Israel's relationship with him. And it didn't take very long for these people who had been instructed at Mount Sinai to be devoted exclusively to Yahweh God, and they are demanding that Aaron make a golden calf. And even more astounding than that is, Aaron made one. So, here's the person who will be consecrated as the high priest, the the pinnacle of leadership in Israel. And he's making what the people want. Wow. Did anybody object to that? Well, I'm sure there must have been a few. But this is the low status of Israel, spiritually speaking. And so how many people, when they received all these detailed instructions for, we've already looked at the burnt offering, we've looked at the grain offerings, we've looked at the peace offerings, and today we're gonna, going to look at the purification offerings. But how many people had a heart to do things the only way God specified? Ultimately, we don't know that question. There were a lot of priests, we do know that, but how many offerings a day came in from a bunch of people who were having such a a problem with what God had told them, what God had commanded them? In response to God's grace in delivering them from from Egyptian bondage? How many people had hearts of gratitude? I belong to the Lord. I'll do anything he commands me. Once again, we don't know. We do have glimpses into basically how dismal, I guess I could say, have been, has been God's, uh, man's response to God's grace. Let's turn uh, for a moment to, if I can get my thing to work here, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30. And in 2 Chronicles 30, we're going to see an event from the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings that ever reigned over Judah. As a matter of fact, 
It said of Hezekiah that he had a heart like David, a heart after God's own heart. And so he wanted to do right. And and when he became king, the first thing he did was he cleaned up the mess that his father Ahaz had made of the temple and the sacrificial system. And he cleansed the temple and he he reestablished the sacrificial system. And then the next thing he did was make sure they had a Passover celebration. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 21, it says, And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festivals for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings. Ah, there we go. Peace offerings, what we just talked about last week. And giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So 14 days they kept this. Remember, they had, Hezekiah had sent ambassadors up to the northern kingdom, and he had invited them to come down to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover uh, with uh, Judah. Unfortunately, most of the people in the northern kingdom laughed those ambassadors to scorn. They mocked them unmercifully. However, some people from three tribes of the northern kingdom did come down. They humbled themselves, and they are here for this massive Passover. So notice verse 14, or 24, I mean. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly, these are his own personal animals, 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great number. So over 14 days, they slaughtered 2,000 bulls and 17,000 sheep. Wow. That is a lot of animals. And even though these priests were very skilled in what they did, that's a lot of animals to sacrifice. Verse 25, the whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. Now get this. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Now, what exactly does that mean? There was nothing like this. 
that happened in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon? That's been 300 years ago. Tell me, what was happening in America 300 years ago? Not a whole lot. <laughs> We're colonies. We weren't, even, we weren't even a nation back then. And uh, wow, it, it, it just, the American history is just beginning 300 years ago. That's how long it's been since either A, there hadn't been a Passover since Solomon's days, or B, choice B, is there had nothing been, there had nothing had been celebrated on this scale before. Okay, so back when the original Passover occurred, people slaughtered lambs. One lamb for every household. That was before the Levitical system was all set up that we're talking about now. But then by the time of Solomon, Solomon was wealthy beyond belief. He had David as his father. He was concerned to obey the sacrificial system. And he was very generous in giving animals to be sacrificed and calling upon Israelites to sacrifice too. But now, 300 late years later during Hezekiah's reign, there hasn't been something on that magnitude for all those hundreds of years. What does that say about the spiritual condition of Israelites? I think it tells me that although there were faithful people who believed the Lord, who loved the Lord, who wanted to draw near to him in worship at the tabernacle, they were relatively few and far between. Now, it's amazing that the priests could, could slaughter and manipulate all those 2,000 bulls and 17,000 sheep in 14 days, but they did. There must have been a lot of Levitical priests to handle that workload. But I think that this is a very special occasion, and the priest's workload was no doubt much less than this. There were times, in fact, when the Levitical priests uh, did not even receive enough food by the way of the offerings that Israel was supposed to be bringing to support themselves. And so many of the priests, just by virtue of the fact that they had to survive, were abandoning the temple worship and eking out what, uh, what existence they could in land around their, their various Levitical cities that they had been given. So I think basically the answer to this question, how could they handle the workload, is twofold. Number one, most Israelites were in no condition spiritually to sacrifice to this extent. Of course, the wealthier people in the nation 
A bull was a very significant offering. But even for, say, middle class people, or lower middle class, it was a sacrifice for them to bring a goat or a sheep or any of the other, or grain offerings even. And so they didn't do it. Ask yourself the question, how many people in Greenville, in the churches like ours that believe the word of God, these are people who have a testimony of salvation, what is the spiritual temperature of the churches in Greenville? How much sacrifice is going on even amongst our congregation? Boy, the family that volunteered to go and, and help the Gibbons, that's quite, a, that's quite a sacrifice. They're putting their lives on hold. Well, actually, they're investing their lives. And they're going to be significantly in family upheaval here for a while, going for at least one year, but quite an amazing step. And we look at that and we say, wow, that's unusual. What are we sacrificing? So, anyway, that's my answer to the question, how could the priests have kept up with the sacrifice. Any other questions? Is that a, is that a satisfactory answer? I, it's a very difficult answer to, or question to answer. All right, let's go on then. Seeing, by the way, feel free to ask questions whenever they come up. All right, so here we've got the ascension or burnt offering. We've covered all that. Are we... Uh, covered the grain offerings in Leviticus 2. We're done with that. And we are almost done talking about the peace offerings in Leviticus 3, 1 through 17. Uh, So basically, these peace offerings were a wonderful picture, ultimately, of what we know of in a New Testament sense as uh, the Lord's Supper. Notice, significance for us today Compare Luke 22:20, where our Savior is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he gets to the point where he says, take this cup, drink it. This is the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you. And all we, that, that uh, reminds those of us who've, who have studied the Old Testament Yes, the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that's not like the old covenant. This new one is unconditional. The old covenant was sustained by the sacrificial system. But in the new covenant, it's it's ratified in the once for all death and shedding of blood of our Savior. And it's permanent and it's unconditional. 
but by the way, does that mean that we don't have any responsibilities in the new covenant? Oh, we've got responsibilities. I would argue even stronger responsibilities because the blood of our Savior is not like the blood of the sacrificial animals. It is our human and divine Savior offering his blood. Remember, the life is in the blood. How can our Savior, God in human flesh, die? Well, the answer is he's both God and man in hypostatic union. And so, here now, the precious blood of Christ as a spotless lamb given by our Savior freely for us. What does that demand of us? That demands our trust, our putting our faith in the finished work of Christ. That demands a life of obedience on our part, now that we're saved. That demands sacrifice. Our time is not our own. Our money is not our own. Our futures and plans are not our own. But rather, as we are in this new covenant relationship with our gracious Savior, Our lives now are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And Paul says, therefore, glorify Christ in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. It's a call to complete revolutionary change in a human life. Who's our worst enemy? We are. We're our worst enemies. Like, it's like Pogo. Who, who remembers the Pogo comic strip? We have seen the enemy and he is us. <laughs> Pogo would say, yes, indeed. We're selfish. We are rebels by nature. Sinners by choice and by virtue of being sons of Adam. And now Christ has died for us, the just for the unjust. That has to be revolutionary. And we who have been saved for a long time, perhaps maybe we need to come back to the fact We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So the Lord's Supper brings to our minds, or at least should bring to our minds, the new covenant that Christ shed for us on the cross. And we need to remind ourselves daily of that fact, lest we take back selfish control of our own lives. Say, no, Lord, I don't, 
I don't know, that, that's too much for you to ask of me. How could it be too much for Christ who gave his, his all for us? What could he demand of us that would be too great? The answer is nothing. All right, now that brings us to uh, our topic today, the purification offerings, also called the sin offering. Now, it's interesting here that the word for sin is virtually the same as the word for this type of offering. The interesting thing is here that the noun sin is based on a, uh, a verb which means to purify something. That's odd, isn't it? Well, we know that because of the fact that we sin, we need purification. Have you ever been, say, doing something that has made you a mess? <laughs> Maybe you've been painting a room and you've got paint splatters on you, paint splatters on your clothes, or you've been out and about in the woods scouting for the wily white-tailed deer, and you uh, looked at a bank that was so steep, the only way you could get down it was to slide down it. Oh, the only trouble is, though, it's been raining. And when you slide down, now your pants are covered in mud. How do you feel when you're filthy dirty like that? It's, boy, I can hardly get, wait to get home and uh, take a shower. And it is this sense of filth that uh, is, is always metaphoric in the Old Testament for sin. So the first three offerings uh, basically go together as a unit, burnt, grain, peace offerings. The next two, purification and guild offerings, likewise form a unit involving atonement for the sins of various classes of individuals. And we even find out that Israel as a whole nation needs this kind of purification. So the idea of sin and the necessity of purification from it all forms this semantic range uh, that the the Bible calls, either way you want to look at it, the purification offerings or the sin offerings that require purification. It's the same thing. Remember that the purpose of the offerings is to allow sinners to draw near to the holy God who now dwells in their midst. It's God's gracious gift to us to be able to offer these purification offerings so that we are then in a position where we may approach him. Now, of course, the limits of that approach at the tabernacle were limited. So we're about to see, we're about to get to, after this section 1 through 10, we're about to get to an account of two of Aaron's sons who did something 
that the Bible says involved foreign fire, they did something about their approach to God that was wrong, and what did it result in? Bam! Their immediate incineration. Or how about in the New Testament, when Ananias and Sapphira agree with one another that they're going to misrepresent how much money they got for the sale of the land they sold. And Peter says, well, that's it for you two guys, or you, you man and you wife. And first it's Ananias that falls down dead. Next it's Sapphira who falls down dead. They take these two out, bury them. And it says that fear went through this new church congregation. I would imagine, look what God can do. He can choose to do this. He can choose to take our lives in an instant, if that's what he desires to do, just to show people that those who approach me must be very careful about their lives. And so, there it is. The purpose of the offerings is not some sort of, of demand that God made because people were trying to earn their own salvation. No, these, this, these, this legislation has been given to people who have already been redeemed from Egyptian bondage. They've already been made a part of a covenantal nation. And now, God says, be very careful to make sure that you are doing what it takes to be purified from your sin. And people whose hearts resonate with obedience to God are going to be listening very carefully to this. Others, not. It's helpful to recognize that the Old Testament often uses impurity as a metaphor for sin. So when David sins with Bathsheba, uh, and in the aftermath of that, after Nathan has come to him and remonstrated with him about his sin, David confesses his sin. And he tells the Lord, wash away my iniquity. The word iniquity here speaks of the perverseness of what he's done. What has David done? He's lusted after Uriah's wife. He sent through Joab to set Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and withdraw for him from him so that he dies in battle. Then he thinks he's covered this up and he takes Bathsheba to be his wife and she becomes pregnant and she has a child. The only thing is she was already expecting when he married her. And he thinks, you know, basically he's covered his sin. But then the prophet comes, 
Oh, no. Look what you're guilty of. You're guilty of lust. You're guilty of murder. You're just guilty of the most heinous crimes. The man who has, up until now, lived his life according to what, how God would have him live. And so he says, Lord, and this is, this is not just a, a would you please if it, if it suits your purposes. This is an imperative. Wash away my iniquity. And in the parallel structure of the verse, and cleanse, that's, that's synonymous with wash, cleanse me from my sin. That's the broadest word for sin, chata, and it's the name of our purification offering, by the way. So, I mean, he's not taking no for an answer here. He knows that God will do this because God has always shown himself to be gracious to those who confess their sin and turn from their sin. Now that's amazing that God didn't say to David, nope, sorry, that's it, David. You, you sinned too severely this time. You've had it. You're washed up. I'm just going to kill you on the spot. No, God is always uniformly gracious to those who humbly and in obedience to the word of God confess their sin. They don't try to blame somebody else. Remember Saul? When Samuel says, you know, Saul, look, you've, you've transgressed against the word of God. I told you to kill all the Amalekites, and you've kept Agag alive. What was Saul's response to that? Oh, and by the way, and, and, you, and you, didn't, you didn't kill all the animals. Oh, Saul says, yeah, yeah, I know, but uh, I kept the animals alive so I could reward my commanders and my army. And, and Agag, well, he's kind of like a, a trophy. He, he's now going to sit is going to be under my table, living off the scraps, and it be a continual reminder to everybody how great God is and, and he, how he gave me a victory over the Amalekites. No. Then David says, look, does the Lord have as much delight in, in sacrifice as in obeying the word of the Lord? The Lord's removed you from being king. Wow. What made the difference between the Lord's two responses there? David really confessed his sin. Saul merely excused his sin and blamed it on other people. There is no excuse for our sin. Not for Saul's sin, not for my sin, not for your sin. No excuse. So we need to come clean with God about what we've done. Sin affects more than the sinner. 
There is no harmless sin that has no effect on anybody else. What's the New Testament concept there? We're all members of the body of Christ. We can't do anything that has no effect on anybody but us. Just as, for instance, in uh, Joshua, Achan sees the Babylonian garments and the wedge of gold and puts them under the ground in his tent, even though he knows that God has declared those to be under the ban. Things like that are supposed to go in the, in the temple treasury or the tabernacle treasury for the support of priests. Uh, and no doubt he must have thought, nobody's ever going to know this. This sin is just not going to have an effect on anybody. But in fact, it brought God's wrath on the whole nation. And they go up to Ai to, to fight against it, and Israel's army is soundly defeated. Why? Because one man coveted what was not his to own. That hidden secret sin of his brought ruin temporarily on the whole country. Boy, I tell you what, we are likely to have too light a view of sin. There is no, ultimately, small sin, secret sin, that we just think, oh, well, you know, that's not so bad. Oh, yes, it is. If it violates the word of God, it is bad and needs to be confessed and purified. For the Israelite, that meant bringing a purification offering. The worst part about sin is it involves the dishonor of God's holy name. Even if nobody ever knows about it, God does, and it's dishonoring to him. When you were growing up, did your father ever tell you something like this? Now look, son, you're, gonna, you're getting old enough now to going into junior high. That's when my dad told me this. And if you do wrong, you bring dishonor on me. Now, my dad was really serious about this. He was a member of the greatest generation. He had hazarded his life in World War II on a PT boat. You know this movie about the PT boats? They were expendable? Yes, indeed, they were. But my dad got in right towards the end of the war, and he had limited uh, action on, you know, fighting against Japanese uh, ships. And so he survived. The atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki just before my dad would have commanded his men and his PT boat to draw enemy fire from the shore, almost surely a suicide mission. So, 
This is a man who had hazarded, hazarded his life and for whom honor was a very real concept. And it's still the way it is with most of the military today. Semper Fi, Marine Corps. Always faithful. And so my dad said, don't you dare bring shame on me and our entire family. What was my response? Yes, sir. I hear that. I understand that. And it's that to an infinite degree when we're talking about those whose sin ultimately brings shame on our Savior. All right, well, they're amassing out in the hall there. We're out of time. I got, I got going, and I forgot what time it was. So let's pray, and we'll pick this up again next week. Our Father, we're thankful for the book of Leviticus, for the instruction that it is to us till this day. Father, help us to recognize areas in our lives that we need to confess daily, many times a day sometimes, that we would walk with you in purity of heart and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.